This is Seeds for Success, a show where we have a good yarn about ag life with producers who are having a go. On the show, you'll hear from farmers in New South Wales who are out there battling the elements, making tough calls and getting the job done. You'll get a laugh out of some of their stories and also pick up some know-how along the way. I'm your host, Narrily Brennan. Today, we're having a yarn with Rodney Guest. Rodney, along with his wife, Leone, own and manage Thornburn near Rankin Springs. And this year, they celebrate the milestone of 100 years of family farm ownership. In this episode, Rodney talks to us about the good seasons he's been enjoying of late and how the introduction of technology, such as Weed It, has been a game changer for weed management in their cropping operation. You'll also hear how over the last 40 years, Rod has been involved in the fight to conserve the threatened Mallee fowl. Rod's been instrumental in building local populations by hatching his own Mallee fowl chicks and releasing them into an exclusion zone in a joint project with neighbouring landholders and Riverina LLS. Local Land Services Senior Natural Resource Management Officer Jasmine Wells sat down with Rodney at home on Thornburn to bring you this chat. Hi listeners, I'm here at Thornburn today with Rodney Guest. Rodney and his wife Leonie own and manage this property and Rodney's invited us here for the day. I was actually here to talk about Mallyfowl today. Rodney, but driving up the driveway, there's just some beautiful crops, some of the best I've seen across the region. Yeah, we're pretty lucky in this area. The crops are really looking great. We had very good rain last year, bit wet as everyone would know, but we had a really good start right up till April. And yeah, the crops do look fantastic. And a lot of country was flooded as well last year, which has sort of helped us get good background moisture. So you've got a pretty important anniversary coming up. Yeah, so next week marks 100 years the farmer's been in the family. As far as I know, there is only one other person in this area, which dates back to 1923. Most of the older farmers around here date back to the 1930s when the reconstruction happened. So, yeah, we're pretty excited about that. It's not a bad mark at all to make 100 years. Oh, it's an amazing innings. You know, imagine some of the things that people have been through across that 100 years to be able to retain it in the family for that long. Been some struggle years, but no, it was, um, yeah, we're pretty wrapped in it. So for the sake of the listeners, I should mention that I've crossed the border into Riverina LLS territory and I'm near Rankin Springs in some beautiful sandy loam country. What size property have you got here, Rodney? Yeah, so I've got five and a half thousand acres of mallee loam soil, all nice square paddocks, no hills, no rocks, and it's all adjoining, so I'm only five minutes from home, so we're pretty spoiled, easy farming country. It does look like it's good country coming through here. I mean, even your gravel road, like there was about 12 k's of gravel to get in here off the tar, and it's amazing. It's one of the best roads I've been on, I think. (laughs) Well, our Pinabacana Road has only just been fixed up really good. It's probably been one of the worst roads in the whole Shire for a long time and into Griffith. So at long last of years campaigning, we're finally getting a bit of tar road on the Griffith end of the road and Carrefour Shire are doing a lot of work at the moment. So 
what you see now is not what we've put up with for a long time. <laughs> Good timing then. Yeah. So those crops, I, I mean, there was wheat on one side and canola on the other and just, you know, the consistency throughout them, completely weedless. What do you owe that success to? Like, Yeah, so I suppose we're farmers of moisture is what we are. So we put a lot of emphasis on summer fallow. You know, we've got to weed it and weed control is quite important to us, resistance and all that. So we really focus on that. So we had good moisture profile at the start and we're able to get the crops up and going and we're pretty switched on. We um, have good agronomy. So I think that a lot of it's down to that and just keeping your eye on the ball. A few neighbours around here are pretty stiff competitions. So I think there's a bit of a neighbour thing going to keep up there. So, yeah. Yeah, it was really nice coming through here, just seeing that consistency. And how did last year go for you? And well, the last two years, really, with the amount of moisture around? Yeah, so last year, even though we did everything right, the stripe rust really did a lot of damage to the crop. But we still did over three tonne, you know, which is quite good any other year. No one had ever whinge about getting three tonne and the price we got. So, yeah, that was all right. But we did lose probably a couple of tonne to the hectare from the stripe rust damage and you know it's frustrating when we did everything correctly we sprayed three times and all that and the year before was probably my best year ever i got wiped out by hail (laughs) i had had huge hail damage you know the hail assessor was 80 odd years old and he'd never seen 100 percent damage like that so i actually actually ended up quite good but we've had four good years in a row when we took over the family, Leonie and I took over the family farm in the 1980s, we no sooner signed up, interest rates went up, land values went down and we were in Struggle Street for probably 20, 30 years. So, and in all those years, we never got two good years in a row, whereas we've had four now and the way this year's going might be five. So it's just unheard of, but anyhow, time will tell. Yeah, and I guess those years aren't really that long ago. I was at a mate's place recently out near Ivanhoe and they've got some beautiful yards set up. I was like, oh, you know, you're so lucky. And his response was, oh, it wasn't always this shiny. They can very clearly remember what it was like not that long ago. Yeah, that's right. And, you know, like, yeah, it was really tough going and you didn't have the best of equipment, but, you know, now we've got some good equipment around us and it just makes life so much easier. But, yeah, it's just... A lot of hard work and, yeah, just hanging in there. And you've got to weed it. Let's talk about that. Yeah, so we bought a weed it three years ago. So it's been really great. It's been good in in different ways. Yeah, we do cut down a lot on a chemical. You're up to 90% in a lot of stuff. So a lot of our average is probably 2% to 10% of the paddocks we spray. The beauty of it is if you get resistant weeds, you can really hammer them with expensive chemicals. You can just nail it. The downside probably is your tractor hours. You know, you've nearly got to be out there every month spraying the paddock, whereas if you're doing a blanket spray, you, you could get away with you know, six or eight weeks. But that's the downside. You do do a lot of hours on the tractor doing it. It certainly pays. Another issue we've had here in the your lower organic matter on the sand hills is we've noticed over the few years the sand hills just haven't been performing. The crop will germinate fine, and then it'll go yellow, which has now been put down to the, the parent chemical in the glyphosate and 2,4-D to an extent. 
testing has proven that that's sort of sitting in the upper subsoil and the plants germinate and then when the roots get to that layer, the crops just don't die but they just don't perform. So I think the weed at the sand hills are improving because we're just not putting that blanket lot of red up over the paddocks. So I think that makes a big difference. I wasn't really keen on getting the weed. I not wouldn't say keen, but it sort of wasn't a priority. But my son-in-law, he typical young fella, want this, want that. But, yeah, he was 100% right. It was a good investment and I wouldn't think twice about it in the future getting that sort of technology. Once you get that greater uptake, you know, you've got that other support outside of your dealers as well. You can go to people to get that technology. That's right. And it is a bit of a learning curve using it, what it can and can't do. And ours is a, a dual boom, so we can blanket spray and weed it spray. So even last year, we just tried doing a low rate of glyphosate out the blanket boom, like a litre of a hectare, because the weed, it won't pick up real little weeds or stuff only just germinating. So we just did a light rate at the blanket spray and then in the hot tank we had a high rate of chemical and it did a brilliant job. So that might hopefully cut out that having to go over the paddock once a month. Yeah, true. And also I guess that works for when you have to put a rough spray up too, you can do a blanket. Well, we don't really use it in the winter time. So like things like algae and that in the paddocks, that'll, that'll send it off. Even moisture will send it off a bit. So you just get too many false fires. But yeah, once you're fallows, you've sort of got the fallows cleaned up a bit, you'll use it then. But there is green on green technology coming, which yeah, yeah. you can do all that sort of stuff too. you sign up to yeah. try one of those out. Oh, I don't know. I've spent enough money, I think. The son-in-law can start spending the money. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I was time getting, will tell. I was getting way ahead of the game there, yeah. wasn't I? yeah. <laughs> And so big cropper, but also big environmentalist. Yeah, so I've always, from a kid, I've always loved nature, always had birds in aviaries and always been very interested in it. I've been nagging some national parks people for probably 30-odd years to try and get some mallyfowl here because at the back of our place on Heath property, we have fully top nature reserve, which is where the initial... Mallyfowl research work was done by Harry Friff in the 1950s. It is prime mallyfowl habitat because we, you know, on really good mallee soil and I suppose just consistent nagging of people and, um, yeah, it's starting to pay off. You know, the LLS are right behind this project and, yeah, it's going really good. We're really wrapped in it. Also, we're involved all the local farmers in this Rankin Springs area got involved in glossy black cockatoos in the nearby hills. They were worried about the number of glossy black cockatoos. So we took on that project and, you know, we hand cat traps out to farmers free. There was fox baiting done and we've done also work for other birds like superb parrots, major Mitchell cockatoos, putting up nest boxes and have nest boxes for people who want to put them up and turquoise parrots up in the hills. So, you know, I've had really good uptake by farmers. And the other good thing about it, like a lot of farmers haven't had a lot of trust with some of these government departments. You know, I've really only got one farm in this whole, you know, probably a 100K square area. There's only one farmer who's not really on with us. But we have 
gained the trust of all the farmers in the area and then we've introduced them to people who do this environmental work. So we've just broken down that barrier between government departments and farmers, which is really you know, starting to pay some dividends now. And do you think that's because you're a farmer yourself? Definitely. Like we were out uh, doing some mallyfowl counts north of here and the national parks and LLS people before we went to the pub for tea for the night all took their government clothes off of their insignia on it and um, we knew the publican and, you know, the neighbour and I were up there doing the work and talking to him and the locals and we all started talking, like the national parks people and LLS people were all talking to the farmers as well. Whereas if we weren't there, that just wouldn't have happened. So it's just a matter of breaking down barriers. And there's nothing like a having beer and a barbecue. That's how we break down the barrier. Just get everyone to come in, have a beer, a barbecue. We do a lot of concentrating on kids. Like I've done talks around the schools. And you get the kids involved and that's, I think, a trick. You get the kids involved and then kids nag the parents and, you know, we've had some farmers who push out trees and all that who think it's fine what they're doing and they get on these bird counts and they wouldn't have known a sparrow from a galah or a black cockatoo and they've got to do the counts and identify the birds and it just gets their interest and then they say, well, maybe we should leave some areas for some of this nature because I think that's what it's all about is is leaving something for the future. Yeah, I agree. And I think sometimes in government we need to be able to tick a box fairly quickly and so not immediately being able to measure that practice change and say children, we stepped away from that a bit in the past and I think that's a shame because that time spent, you know, you might spend a whole heap of time this year and not be able to tick a box for it. But in a few years' time, you can go back to those kids or those kids' parents or those farmers you met at whatever workshop or show you happen to be at. And it helps get things happening rather than just old mate from the government with a badge on calling. Yeah. And we've put off up nest box in some of the schoolyards so the kids can actually see things and talk about things. But yeah, it's, you just need to work at that barrier and and just open people's eyes, like since we've started this Malifow project, which we really haven't got into yet, but, you know, other farmers have said, wow, you know, I've got a patch of Mallee. We'd like to get involved in something like that. So it's just really opening people's eyes to what's happening and what can be done. Yeah, I just think it's brilliant. And so we are at a meeting last week, Rod, and uh, yep. you started talking about how you're not only growing cereals, you're growing Malifow. Yeah, so I do the monitoring under the umbrella of a New South Wales Mallifow Recovery Group. So I organise the monitoring of all the known mounds in the Riverina, which is about 145 or something like that mounds in the West Wyland, Yalgogran, Rankin Springs area. So I think for three years, I could be wrong, I think it's for the last three years, two years we've been collecting eggs and under the guidance of uh, scientific license from the national parks. I have an incubator here and I hatch the chicks. And at the back of our place on Heath's property, we have a one area of Mallee is fully feral-proof fence to stop cats and foxes and anything getting in. And that whole area is then encompassed in a exclusion fence. So there's three blocks of Mallee which is Pulley Top Nature Reserve and two private blocks of Mallee, which is all linked by corridors. The whole 
it's one thing good. There's still good corridors, which farms need to leave corridors for wildlife to travel in. There's no point having a Malifaya block or a wildlife block which has got no corridor because it's just it's the end of the birds. It's extinction if if you don't leave corridors. There's the three main blocks here and you're releasing them. Like you're literally putting the mallee fowl in the car. Talk us through that process. Like what? Yeah. So for so, our listeners, these are, you know, a threatened bird in Australia that fairly rarely seen and this guy's just driving around. With yeah, I, I think I'm the only licensed person in the world who, who does mallee fowl. So I, I got a bit of guidance from people who did Taronga in the 90s at Taronga Zoo were through the national parks, we're doing incubation there. Plus I've sort of searched on the internet. There was a couple other groups who did some in South Australia, plus my own experience with incubation of chickens. And, you know, I've done a lot of hand rearing of birds and stuff like that. So we incubate the eggs here and I am only a kilometre from where we release the birds in the feral proof area. So we get the chicks, say, they generally hatch late in the afternoon and the next morning we drive down, put them in the centre of our reserve, let them go. And one thing has really amazed me is I always knew a Malifau chick could fly, but, you know, he's a bird 12 hours out of the egg and they can fly really good. It really, when it first happened, we just, jaws just dropped. But, yeah, it's just amazing. You know, the parent has nothing to do with the chick. they just totally on their own and, they're quite an amazing little bird. But, yeah, we're really wrapped in how the project's going. We lose a few to raptors, but we've now a bit exciting. We've got at least one adult bird in there now. We've dug a false mound, and the bird has now accepted that mound and is now working that mound. So oh, so what did you do with that? How do you dig a false mound? So how that come about is in when we're monitoring, I notice a lot of mounds will be like where an old bulldozer might have made a bit of an indentation in the ground or a grader. And I was talking to a guy who used to do a lot of the work back in the 90s and 80s. And he said he used to actually get a shovel and just dig a bit of a hole. And 50% of the time, the birds actually took up those holes. So David, he did that and the birds now pretending it and carrying on. We call him Adam Ant because he looks, he's got a white stripe under his head and he looks a bit like Adam Ant. So he's already got a name. But the funny thing was we've got some cameras in there and we never really picked up many chicks that would release that year and all of a sudden we're getting that old bird. So I think we've released 12 chicks this year and we haven't seen any for a while on the cameras, but we did pick up some a few months ago. So, yeah, we're just hoping he has some other partners in there. Oh, how exciting. And so have you got any on the go at the moment? No, so our nesting season is generally October till end of March. So it's fairly hectic. My wife loves it because we can't go away anywhere and she has an incubator in our office. And But the dog likes it. The dog, it's funny, we've got a little Shih Tzu terrier and she knows when the chicks are hatching, so she alerts me. But it's quite interesting how the eggs all hatch between, you know, from four o'clock in the afternoon after summer till about sundown and never had them hatch in the morning. And yeah, 99% of them hatch in that time, but. I think one of the key things I got out of this when you were chatting the other day, you've just reinforced it now, 
is that we put all this science into things. You know, we all, you know, we go to uni, we study everything that could possibly happen and we still, we miss out on so much that's obvious. And then, you know, here's you. The most important factor here is your willingness and Leonie's support and, you know, she's got them hatching in her office <laughs> and success. I suppose as being a farmer, you're, you're practical. So I try and put those same practices in into that sort of work. So when Taronga do it, we, um, they use foam stubby holders, which is a battle. I think I've got the last two boxes in existence in, from up near Cairns or somewhere at a, at a shop up there. But they left them in the foam polystyrene container for two days or something. Then the chicks were five days old. By the time they got them to Dubbo to Yathong, it was five days. Now, the chicks, when they hatched, they, they got their yolk sac. Now, that's about five days they can s- survive on the yolk sac without eating. And we sort of thought, well, that's not really good. You know, like the chicks hatch in the afternoon. I let them go first thing in the morning. So they've still got four or five days of yolk sac before they've got to find food. You know, whereas when the Dubbo Zoo were doing, they did about 500 birds. And I think the oldest they got one to was 12 months old. And that didn't have success for various reasons. But to me, that is a, a big part. We are getting the chicks. We're on site. We're releasing them on site. And, you know, they're off to a good start. Absolutely. And so what does the future hold for them? Like, can you see this going commercial? I suppose what the aim of it is, is for me is to get other farmers who have blocks of Mallee to say, hey, we'd like to take on this. So I think the New South Wales Mallee population is, you know, maybe 20 years might not exist. Now, unfortunately, there's still clearing going on a virgin country, which I just don't get how that is happening. It just shouldn't happen. So there's pockets of Mallee which are now isolated. There's no connecting areas and... I think the future for them is not good. So what I'd like to see is happen, and I've had other farmers say, hey, we'd like to do this and get involved. So what we're trying to do is we're trying to get different genetics of the eggs we're getting. I'm very careful of where I keep an eye on what chicks I'm releasing. So I'm getting chicks from different areas. I think inbreeding is a big problem. So if we can get birds here of different bloodlines, we've got population here, we'll get them established and breeding, that we can release birds into other sites where we know the chicks are, you know, not brother-sister sort of thing. So, yeah, so if we can get other farmers involved and other areas involved, I think that would be the highlight of it all. Yeah. One of my big questions was going to be, what's your why? Like, what's your drive of it? I think that's come through here. Yeah, I mean, you just like to leave a legacy and something your grandchildren and their grandchildren hopefully can see because, you know, it's definitely changed. Even, you know, when I was younger, you see big flocks of galahs around and Major Mitchells and all that, and you just don't see that now. And now we're starting to see the odd Indian miner around, you know, which is really bad for our local birds. And like, as I said, when we're kids, of Glass everywhere. You see hundreds of them in a flock. You just don't see it now. So, you know, you think there's plenty around, but there's not. And with cockatoos and a lot of these birds which live for a long time, you might think you've got lots of them around. They could be old birds not breeding anymore. And all of a sudden there's a crash. They just 
gone because they're old birds you're seeing. I think that's the big danger. People just need to be aware of what's around them. Yeah, absolutely. And as while there's practical people who are involved like yourselves, you know, I think there's a lot more hope. Yeah, I think too. Because I, yeah, I think some of this government stuff just happens too slow. You know, it's it just takes too long. By the time you tick all the boxes for everything, I, a lot of stuff just happens too slow. It's monitoring, monitoring, monitoring. We say, what do you monitor them till they're dead? Yeah, like. <laughs> yeah. 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 Sadly, I th- I do think you're right. Like there's a lot of hoops for us to jump through to get things done. Whereas if we could have just more of that supportive role, I guess, like you've had from Riverina, but you're you're the driver. I think that's the way of the future. Yeah. Look, and the LLS have been great. You know, they've been really great in supporting this project and makes a big difference and they listen, take note of what we're sort of saying and doing and and I think they're learning from it as well and that's the thing, you know, this government process just needs to be fine-tuned a bit just so things don't take too long. We haven't got long, I think, is, is yeah, the problem. With, and not just mallifowl, there's so many species. That's and right, species everything. Species getting yep. added to yep. the list all the time. So if we can get farmers on board, you know, they – they're the ones managing this land where these animals need to live. So, yep. and I mean, there's other priorities, but I guess I'll add in that, you know, you have that too. You're a husband, a father, grandfather, farmer, and this is just a voluntary thing you do on the side. So, yeah. And look, the the summer season, as I said, it goes from October to March and, you know, we're busy spraying and I'm spending way too much time on it. Like yeah. there's no time to do anything. Well, I was trying to book holidays and I said, oh, I can't. I've got to look after the incubator of it. We're going to buy another incubator so we're not so dependent. Because if you have a blackout, you know, which we get on the farm, we have a blackout, the eggs would die. Yeah. You know, so there's just so many things to consider. So plan one is to get some succession planning happening. Get some more people on board. Yeah just get more people to help but there's a skill set to do the incubating it's something you've got to know what to do there's some young girls within the LLS in the Riverina now have really switched on and hopefully I can sort of step back from some of the stuff and just do my incubating and and they can do some of the field work yeah yeah but the field work is great yeah Yeah. like we found a new mallifowl mound in an area where they hadn't been mallifowl for ages and we're digging the mound out, collecting the eggs, and the bird comes up and looks in the hole and says, what the bippin' <laughs> hell have you done to my mound? Yeah, that's the great stuff. And I think I'd like to think that we get to do a bit more of that in the field in the future. So hopefully. Yeah, hopefully it'll take off. Hopefully more people will get involved. So thank you so much for your time. I think we're going to go for a drive and actually have a look at this. Sounds good, Jazz. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Central West Local Land Services. Local Land Services delivers advice and support to farmers, landholders and the community across New South Wales. To learn more, you can find us online by searching for Central West Local Land Services. If you'd like more information about the topics we discussed today, as well as links to relevant articles, fact sheets, events and other helpful resources, we've added those into the show notes for this episode. You can find them by tapping or swiping over the cover art in your podcast player now. Hey, and while you're there, please leave us a five-star review. It really helps other farmers find the show. I'm your host, Narily Brennan, and I'll chat to you next time.